welcome back everyone to Red Spotlight. I'm your host, Alexis Soto, joined by Peter Martinez, the podcast that brings you all the latest going on in the world of movies and more. And, well, there is quite a bit going on. This essentially is going to function as a part two to the podcast we did last time with Alexis, David, and Kyle, where we talked about Barbenheimer and all that was going on. So here we have Peter... And that's exactly what this is going to be. We're going to talk about Barbie. We're going to talk about Oppenheimer. Um, not Oppenheimer, as Kyle insistently kept calling it the entire time. Oh my god. He's been calling Oppenheimer Oppenheimer the entire weekend. And of course, when it's brought up, he gets angry. And it's in the recording. In the um, movie, they literally call him Oppie. They call him, right? They call him fucking Oppie. <laughs> not Opie. Oppie. <laughs> Very clear. I don't know. It's just a tick, I guess, with him. He just can't help but mispronounce something. Oh, well. I guess that's his cross to bear for the rest of his life. Anywho, um, that's what we're talking about today and more on Red Spotlight number 453. Um, there are things to touch on. What? What is it, Peter? I'm just reminded how I wasn't invited on the 450th episode. By the way, you weren't alone in that. Uh, mm. Several people were not invited, so it's not exactly unique to you. Okay. Uh, to be but I, I don't care about them. I care about me. So. Okay. Well, I don't care about you. Anywho, let's go ahead and get started with what wow. we're talking about today. Um, there's been not much in the way of movement and what's going on, but if there's one thing to just kind of top off the show, can we just take a moment and acknowledge that Futurama is back? We're back, baby. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And I mean, you and I, Peter, are such big you fans. You can only of, say that like five times in a lifetime, right? Right. <laughs> right? I, I mean, <laughs> it's a fifth in a lifetime event. You and I have been uh, fans of this show for practically forever since it's been on. And you and I have been through the trenches of this show, you know, being like stopped and then brought back and then stopped again and then brought back again right it's... now they have the um like the huge box set uh futurama the complete series <laughs> at walmart but which when they say complete series that's what does that mean pr- yeah what does that mean <laughs> i wanted to get it but i was like i i mm. Uh, by the way, the, this is hilarious because in the in the premiere episode, because uh, they just premiered back this week on Hulu, its first episode, they actually have uh, a, a joke where uh, Fry wants to binge all of the the seasons, or, or he hasn't binged the final season of All My Circuits. Remember the show that Calculum oh, was yeah, on? Oh, yeah, All My Circuits. And Bender was like, well, which final season? Which is, I mean, <laughs> like what the show is, like, the which cal- final season? Calculon's dead. He, he he yeah he is and then well is that oh god okay well that's no, part of the no that's spoilers. part of no spoilers but that's part of the episode yes calculon canonically was dead in the previous iteration of the show and then things happen and you'll figure it out here the thing is um there were all i can say as far as the premiere is concerned very meta very futurama very much picking up where they left off 
you you do see a bit of jump in quality in terms of animation. Uh, I mean, you kind of have to, and it's literally been off the air for ten years. I could not believe that. It, it this is the longest break, literally, in between all the previous times that it was just like stopped. That makes 10 sense. Years. I remember when they they brought it back. Mm-hmm. When the I, it was Comedy Central brought it. Back. Right. Yeah, that's when I. Well, technically, I mean. <laughs> Technically, um, Fox were the first people to bring it back. When no, they but I'm it back- saying I remember because you're saying it's been ten years. I'm yes, saying, I remember that time. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the original run uh, for the first four seasons. I want to say was 1999 to 2003 or 2004, and then um, around 2006, 2007. Uh, 2008, 20th Century Fox, which by the way was still a thing back then, um, revived the series, uh, through four direct to DVD, uh, movie sequels, which later then Comedy Central turned into 16 episodes. And mm-hmm. our history was, I remember renting those DVDs and watching them at home, but then you didn't watch them as movies. You watched them as 16 episodes and Comedy yeah. Central would air them. And you didn't even have a clue that they were movies to begin with. No, I just thought that they're doing like um interconnected season. It worked to me. I did not know they were movies. It like worked. It was seamless. It was seamless. As I, I'm actually watching episodes. it back right now. Um, I'm literally, I finished Bender's Big Score. Because I before then I had been, I knew that the, the show was going to come back this week. So I was like preparing for it. Mm-hmm. So I was watching the whole series. I, I literally just finished Bender's Big Score and it worked as four interconnected episodes. Yeah. Like honestly. Um. So, and then after that, there was enough interest and enthusiasm that Comedy Central then brought the show back for, what was it, three seasons from 2010 to 2013? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the thing that Futurama always got, though, it always had great series finales. And I think they had, like, what, <laughs> three or four series finales at this point. Well, you could tell even the movies would mm-hmm. end in, like, semi-cliffhanger. Well, all of them have ended semi-cliffhanger, semi, like, this can work as an ending. Yeah. Um, And it's always funny because then when eventually they do something else, how they immediately, like, just pick up off, back off it and kind of, like, it's like, nope, keep it moving. I don't know. It's it's just funny the way that works. Yeah. And, uh, Jesus, I, I even remember... Being, I, I, one of the, there are several experiences I've had on TV that I remember when I was watching big premieres. I remember like literally being there that Few Trauma came back on TV with a brand new episode. I think it was called Rebirth uh, on Comedy Central. Uh, this was like during summertime and it was like so exciting. This was like 2010, a long time ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like the very first new episode to watch as an episode because I never watched Futurama on Fox. Didn't even know what the Fox network was. I was always watching on Adult Swim. Fox was 9. Those, were, were those reruns? Oh, you watching on Fox 9? Interesting. Okay. So I'd watch The Simpsons a lot as a kid. Oh, that's... And, that's Ma- and Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. And that 70s show. Dude, that so makes so I'd watch so a lot sense. of Fox. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I loved King of the Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't also that one coming back? There's rumors. I thought it was confirmed that King of the Hill was coming back. Yeah, but like everything says it's going to come back and half of it does. And, <laughs> you know, you got to see something concrete before. 
Uh, I mean, you, you're you're right, but um, clearly Hulu is going in on this animation stuff. Um, I was there at Comic Con over the weekend, and they had a big ass mural on the like the buildings, like literally of uh, this animation domination. And part of the bags that they were giving out had to do with Family Guy, Futurama, King of the Hill. Um, they even had some wonderful Abbott Elementary ones that they were going to give give out. But guess who didn't get to have one? Wow. What a loser, right? Remember when they, this was about comics? Comic I know. Yeah. Mm. Clearly, you've never been. Anywho. Okay. Um, <laughs> clearly, uh, this show has always been something we've both have followed. And it's just always been like a combination of clever, hilarious, and heart. To me, mm-hmm. Futurama always had the heart, and man, there always have been some gut punches in there when they've wanted to. Um, there were serious questions about whether or not Futurama should have been brought back. Could it work in 2023? And yet somehow, it, it doesn't seem to matter how much time has passed. They always just come back and they hit the right tone. Now, this, this isn't to say that this season is going to be terrific. All I can speak for is that this first episode was terrific and very much hit the right tone for a premiere episode back. Um, and I'm really curious to see how they build off of, you know, particularly that last finale was one of my favorite episodes. It was also... Oh, yeah, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So, and well, that also... Go ahead. I, I think part of the fun of Futurama is that they do great sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's genuinely, they do interesting stuff with it like you could tell nerds work on that damn show and um but by the way interestingly enough Futurama is one of the few animated shows that is actually in the WGA and protected by the Writers Guild really so, yeah that's cool that's because yeah because usually animation isn't um covered mm, but that's no. no that's good um but also I also think they they do a because they're not usually I don't know um talked about for this but i think they do a pretty good job of like topical humor yeah because they blend it well into the like future aesthetic thing um i always my one of my favorite characters is richard nixon <laughs> <laughs> it's so Aru. stupid yeah <laughs> no speaking of richard nixon and i i had this clip here and i mean i i i i'm gonna play it but the thing is, it's kind of a visual a visual gag here. And this this happens to be the episode where, where Zoidberg ends up eating the American flag or the Earth flag and everybody wants to crucify him. And he goes to his like um his his home planet's embassy for protection. And the mob is all outside. And um well this this situation happens here. The right to freedom of expression is guaranteed by the Earth Constitution. Maybe so. And then it cuts to the Supreme Court, <laughs> which is very topical, of course, even especially now. Uh, I mean, it, it was then because, I mean, let, lest we forget, and I, I, if, if this gets political for some people, I'm so sorry, but this is educational as well. Futurama did come out in, you know, 1999 and 2000, and 
the the Supreme Court then was very much like under heavy criticism because they picked a president for us. I like how so many people forget. I'm still not over it. I wasn't there and I'm still not over it. They picked the person that got the less amount of votes to be the president. That um that 2000 election is like that's like di- a diverging timeline moment. Right? <laughs> like, it really is. Like, like because do you imagine how much better the world would be if Al Gore had become president in, in the year 2000? Just, it's like a dark timeline turn. And that was only in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because only since then, the Supreme Court has uh, politicized itself even more so. And even that may be too fair of a characterization where the Supreme Court has honestly become, at least to me anyway, this group of thugs that's just that has it out for anybody who's not white, Christian or straight. I mean, yeah, I to me, it's one of those things where I really like the Constitution, but I I think they don't. Well, yeah, they don't. But I also think it's ridiculous that we live under guidelines made by people 250 years ago. And we feel like we're sort of stagnated, like we can't grow beyond that. Um, and one of those is like the just the Supreme Court in general. And people always misconstrue that. We're not speaking about ideals. And ideals mm-hmm. certainly change, but it's more about the execution of those practices. Yeah. The, the people that lived in the 17th and, well, in the 18th century, right? Yeah. Um, cannot or could not comprehend where we are right now. So, yeah, I, I feel like t- times are changing and the court itself. Definitely wants to enact change, but in the wrong direction, um, based on all of the decisions that are coming out. But the, the point overall is that Futurama has very much, I mean, it's just, it's created by the same people who made The Simpsons. There are going to be a lot of, you know, topical jokes, but then also gags going on on screen. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I wanted to take a moment and just like, you know, give Futurama its due. And also, I mean, it is the show that just refuses to die. I love it. At this point, it's a perfect gag, right? <laughs> it's perfect because you really can't make it up. I mean, the first time in Bender's big score, they, they really laid it on thick in the beginning about the executives that canceled them in the first place, which, by the way, I mean, there is also a different timeline where none of this happened, where Fox actually, you know, gave the show a reasonable time slot. And I know that this may be a rather antiquated thing to discuss for people who are just you know, in this new age of streaming. But back then, time slots were very detrimental to how good or not you performed on your network or on your cable network. And oftentimes, if you were handed a wrong time slot, you would perform terribly no matter how good or not you were and ultimately would end up being canceled. And Fox, especially in that era, was very known for just moving things around left and right People who would be fans of the show would have no idea where it would even air, again, well before streaming could even, you know, be a figure. And and if that was the case, then it was no wonder that the show ultimately would not end up being renewed. But then again, when 
a network ends up moving a show around that often, especially at those times, they want to cancel a show, basically. So the, those are rather antiquated strategies. They don't really apply too much more these days, mainly because people have just moved away from network TV and cable, you know, wholesale. But, um, yeah, I mean, Futurama on streaming, uh, they, they do a little play on, you know, when the Futurama comes on the, on the title card, it, it first says Hulu-rama, but then it, like, flips around to Futurama. There's a lot of Hulu... Uh, or Fulu jokes, uh, of course, there. So it it works. It may be strange for people who don't have Hulu. Uh, be, I mean, because this is on Disney Plus in regions where Hulu doesn't exist. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So the, that gag me. It doesn't. USA. I mean, people. USA. <laughs> Nixon. Uh, well, 20, I didn't say that. No, no. Nixon 2024. Um, or at least that Nixon. Um, he did though, found the EPA. That's true. That's very true. Anywho, um, we're going to go ahead and... Oh, I also wanted to to um, mention that there was kind of a, a big passing that happened over the weekend. Um, Tony Bennett, the legendary art uh, or jazz artist, passed away at the age of 96. He was almost 97. He had been battling Alzheimer's since 2018. So that's like, that's almost like, what, five, six years? Uh, it's a long time to go through that. And um, I just wanted to say uh, that he clearly was one of my favorite performers, one of my favorite artists. Um, in one of the many ways that I continue to be an odd duck, all of my favorite, all of my favorite artists are close to death. So um, this is just the first uh, hit in a long, cause next is John Williams. And then followed by that, it'll be Elton John. And so there'll be, plenty more people who are going to drop like flies in the next few years and decades. So that just happens to be me, but um, his music definitely meant a lot to me. It is some of the most emotional and just full of heart music you'll ever find. And I mean, if you can't get past slow songs, I don't know what to tell you. It's very much jazz. And so, um, and of course his collaborations and uh, companionship, with Lady Gaga in the last few years, uh, revived his career even more so than it already was. Everybody in the business respected him. Um, and uh, they even replayed at 95. Uh, he, I think for his 95th birthday, he was still able to perform after years of Alzheimer's um, in New York City at Radio uh, City Hall, I believe it was called. Um, and they were, you can stream it now on Paramount+. Plus. Um, and I definitely, I would say, worth checking out because he it was a one-of-a-kind talent. Uh, and certainly the only one um, that I can think of that wore a suit to a performance every time. Um, there's something that he and Sam Raimi would have in common since Raimi always wears a suit to, um, you know, uh, his particular uh, movie sets. Which, by the way, uh, just to ask you a question, Peter... Did you want to set aside some time for its own dedicated podcast to discuss the Evil Dead movies? Um, oh, that's right. I mean, that, that's too much, mm -hmm. I think. For just today. For today, yeah. So, yeah, we can... Because I, I did see Evil Dead, Evil Dead Part 2, and Army of Darkness. Um, and there is just so much and too much to say um, about those movies. Um, but it also... 
as much fun as it was watching those movies, also learning so much about the history and how those movies were made and how they mostly existed outside the studio system. And it just makes you yearn for a system that isn't in place today. You know, it, it makes you yearn for just a better world in all the senses because we're we're in the midst of um, a really crappy situation where more more and more information comes out every day about how the studios could very easily just give the actors and writers what they want, but they just refuse to. And it really comes across as even more evil than before the fact that they just refuse that. And even more so, this notion that there are, you know, serious considerations on the part of those studios to literally, maybe, cancel the rest of the slate for 2023? I think move things away? That shows to me like they're determined to write it out. But it's like they're not going to write it out because that's sort of the folly of this system that we set up. We don't really think far ahead. We think in terms of quarterly revenue. Mm -hmm. And their quarter is going to be up soon. And a lot of heads will roll if they're losing money. So that's why strikes work. That's why I'm also just, I'm failing to see the strategy here. It, it seems rather. Uh, I mean, look, look at what we're talking about. These people. <laughs> look at who we're, yes, I know. But it's, it's like, I, I remember hearing how many millions of dollars they lost every single day during 2020 because they couldn't put their content out in theaters. And now here they are willingly going to do that. In, and in my view, I'm thinking they have a, they think they have a chance on winning the war of public perception and, and pinning this on the actors and trying to like, you know, but that's not going to work. That's not going to work. It's too late when they've already been this cartoonishly monstrous. It, 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 they've already outed themselves. Also, from what I've seen, um, just about all the actors are, are, are pretty involved in step and, yeah, with each other. And, and like, they've been given speeches and demonstrations every day. I've been seeing some of those. They're gaining traction. And that's a difference. I mean, not to the poor writers, they don't have. You know, a big name face for the most part, but th that's the difference when you have the actors out there, you know, helping them along because there are a lot of notable faces yeah. that can definitely deliver that message. But such is the way of things. Um, you know what I think it, helps uh, out? Yes. The whole AR, AI argument. Yeah. I that's think it's e everywhere. Even if you're um really well off actor, that that's something that does pose a risk to your livelihood if not now then soon because mm -hmm. and, and i'm sure a lot of them especially because they're in big movies they're already getting contract offers where it's like we gotta we gotta scan your whole body and, and your likeness and and stuff like that so yeah um, just to also reiterate that uh puck news revealed this week that um it would only cost the studios a piece, $23 million a year, if they agreed to the actor's terms. For that little, they're refusing to 
they're, 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 they're willing to lose so much more as they are right now in delaying some of these films and not making anything new than just simply giving the actors what they want. That is just, I mean, unbelievably brain dead. Now, I wanted to ask you just more specifically for more selfish reasons. On our part, because, of course, we love movies and we've seen so many of them and we always go and see as much as we can. Are we living in a place and time where we might seriously be um, saying goodbye to Dune in 2023? 100% possible. Because it's you, you want to sell it as a big blockbuster. You need your A-list stars You out need there. Timmy and Zendaya. You need Timmy and you, uh, you probably actually need Zendaya more than you need Timmy. But, like, yeah. Especially because Zendaya is actually in this one. <laughs> she can, she, you can have her out there saying, no, for reals, guys, I'm actually, I'm actually in this movie. I'm actually have a lines and doing stuff and saying stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, Zendaya had her own big movie get, that was pushed to April next year. The Challengers film with Mike Feist and Josh O'Connor, uh, directed by Luca Guadagnino. It was, a, it was supposed to open a big movie festival. Um, but then, that of course got pushed. So, yeah, I don't know, man. I think we're gonna have to. It, it's very much a uh, a wait and see situation for sure. Um, I, I do also want to know um, a couple of things that are that are kind of percolating, and uh, we're gonna move on now to the the success of Barbenheimer. Uh, it's terrific numbers, but I did want to say that I I guess in hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can't really blame them too much. And, it, and you know, it sucks to suck, but I just genuinely feel bad for Mission Impossible because yeah. it it just was one of those wrong place at the wrong time, and you really couldn't have picked a worse time to release Mission Impossible, honestly, than the week before Barbenheimer. And it's just like, especially with how much bigger Barbenheimer ended up being than anybody expected too. It just goes to show you that nobody could be bothered to care about Mission Impossible. And it, you know what? To be fair, it's not just Mission Impossible that people didn't care about. It was almost literally everything coming up before it. But because it was so close to Barbenheimer, that makes it look all the worse that literally nobody cared about you. And again, we could say the August. August was right there. In hindsight, that was the way to go. But at the time that the release date was placed, nobody could have foreseen, honestly. Like, like again, Christopher Nolan movies, at best, open between 40 to $50 million opening weekend. Oppenheimer did double that. It was at 80. Mm -hmm. And Barbie, no one could have told you, even at the beginning of this year, that Barbie would have opened to 162 or 160 plus million at the domestic box office for its first weekend well i uh, i'm sure the thinking was oppenheimer is like a, a stuffy um oscar movie so oscar, oscar biopic you know biopic movie. it's not an action movie like nolan movies are usually are yeah and then barbie well, well that's a that's a kids movie it's a little girl kids movie you know it'll it'll do whatever but it's not going to compete for as the main course you know uh action cinema event film like a mission impossible film and i think that was sort of the thinking um and they were wrong <laughs> they were very very wrong it was just a bad bet but even then 
I, I would still just look at the landscape and even that far ahead, you can see there's just nothing going on in August. Like just the best that's going on is Blue Beetle, which, by the way, um, had a budget of a hundred and what, hundred and twelve million dollars. Uh, which is pretty modest, all things considered, but it's modest because it was supposed to be an HBO Max film, back when HBO Max was a thing, as you said. Mm-hmm. However, even with that modest budget, it is looking to become a miserable failure in its own right, with it's currently tracking to open to only $12 million, and maybe at best gross 50-something to 70-something million dollars at the domestic... How abysmal is that? And the, How abysmal is that? And the thing is, they're there's they're not gonna market it, you know. Why would you? They're just like we just need to get this over. It's like pulling a band aid <laughs> at this point. Just let it die. Yep. And with Mission Impossible, look. Uh, historically speaking, it's it's it plays like a James Bond film. You know, there's a lot of similarities between you know the two franchises, but it also plays in the same vein that most of its money is overseas, and it is doing well overseas. Um, it's just that it's not doing well as well here because of so much competition, um, and it especially hurts my heart to see that it's not just getting the competition from Barbenheimer, but it's getting its ass handed to it by Sound of Freedom. See, on paper, that looks bad, but then in real life, so much, like, I guarantee at least half, at least half is that box office. Is that box office? Is these billionaire right wingers, these, these church groups, and, and even just like very rich everyday conservatives that are like just buying up tickets in mass. Mm-hmm. Like you're literally, I think at the end of the movie, they literally put in the credits. You're encouraged to like purchase tickets to sort of like pay it forward to pay, you know, so more people can come see the movie. I think there's like a website you can go to 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 pick up free tickets um, where everyone where the, all this is like they're 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 selling out. Um, I I just don't buy. I just don't buy it. I I, I really think. The, the movie is very much inflated. Um, Which, hilariously enough, I should have also mentioned, we do have a review on the podcast for Sound of Freedom because Alexis and David went to go see it uh, with their father. And um, Alexis's uh, review of the film was hilarious. Um, she felt so uncomfortable um, just being there and watching the film. Um, and, and again, I don't, I don't mean to, I guess, uh, belittle people who watched the film or, or enjoyed it. I just, um, when it comes to Sound of Freedom, it, it, to me, it, between Sound of Freedom and Barbie, I guess we can also use this to transition to the other big thing that we were just discussing before the fact. Sound of Freedom, to me, is very much the, uh, just... When you look at how much conservative media pushed this film, when you also look at, you know, the ties that the film's stars and financiers have to QAnon, and then also when you think about, you know, how in the way that they're pushing it, well, they don't frame it and they don't push it as, oh, this is a film that our friends made and we want to get you to go and see it. They frame it as, 
this is a very important message. This is a very important story. And therefore, it demands your attention. But wait a minute here. I thought doing that was woke. I thought message-heavy films... It's only and woke I thought, of its left wing. There it is. Put it plain and simple. But that, like, like we were, like, that's how I was telling. That's why they moved from saying get politics out of movies, right, to saying woke, saying woke, like, like, you know, go woke, go broke, and saying stuff like that. Because yeah, saying like get politics out of movies, it's a really stupid thing because movies are art, politics is inherent to art in in any small or big way. But woke is this perfect, malleable phrase. This It's an idea. That it's, ultimately means nothing. That ultimately means nothing and anything you yeah. want at the same time. So we talk about how like everyone's like, oh, Super Smash Brothers, you know, when it, the first trailer, oh, it's Hollywood, go woke. And then it made like a $150 million opening weekend. Mm, actually, never mind. We lied. It's not woke. And it's in fact, the fact that Mario did so well shows how audiences don't like wokeness because it beat out Disney. Right. And then, and then the same thing with Spider-Man and it's across the Spider-Verse by any other metric. I've seen them talk about other films is very much woke. Like it's insane. But again, no, they don't ascribe that label to it because the film did well. So now when it comes to something like Barbie, they don't know what to do. <laughs> because the movie, as we'll discuss, it's as woke as it gets. And I guess the way that we're using woke, I guess, <clears throat> would be left-wing politics. Um, but I, again, I just want to use this to also just further expose these people who are complaining about wokeness. It's like the, what they're ultimately complaining about is that they don't want anything that's not conservative politics to be involved. They don't want to have the the anybody who's liberal minded or a different point of but view push cowards. their agenda. Yes, that's that's the to me that's the real issue because they won't come out there and say that. They'll say instead of saying. Because they're acting like snowflakes, right? They're saying, "Yeah, I don't want to be. I'm. I'm afraid, and I don't want to look at people with values and movies with beliefs different than mine." They don't want to say that because then they come off like the snowflakes that they accuse other people of doing. So what they'll say I mean, aren't these the people that burn shoes because, or exactly. that they, or, or they ban Bud Light because they're pro gay mm -hmm. or no? Remember, they burn Barbies. They're they're against uh, canceling. But then the second anybody or any company does anything they don't like, immediately they band together and be like, oh, make sure that they fail or their business fails and, and, and all of this. And it's like, man, that sounds a lot like you're canceling them for having political beliefs, you know. But I thought, you know, canceling was wrong. They're cowards. They're political cowards. Because they can never just come out and say... I disagree with you on this and that's why I think you're bad and that's my issue because they don't have confidence in the things they believe or even worse they know the things that they believe are shit or like evil like me if I I haven't seen um Sound of Freedom you know but I can tell you like yeah I don't care to see it based off of you know 
its politics seemingly from who's behind the camera and everything I know of it. And I just don't care to see it. Yeah. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, um, no, I actually don't have an issue with the politics of the film. It's just, I don't like when they try to shove it down my throat and like, no, like that's not my issue. (laughs) No, my, my issue is I don't want to be, seen supporting a film yes. that has that close ties to mm-hmm. QAnon. And QAnon, I feel, is a cancer in society. Yes. And, and they've, the but, people uh, who guess are... What? We're not Go gonna, ahead. We're not going to... Me and you, we're not going to cry about quote-unquote canceling, right? Like, when conservatives say, well, I'm not going to support Barbie, I'm not here crying like, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. That's canceling and canceling is wrong. I'm just like, okay, like, do whatever the fuck you want. Um... I just hate how cow- like cowardly they are. Again and again and again. <laughs> just seems to be the case. Um, and they constantly just, you know, they reveal themselves who they are. And then, of course, you know, it's funny how David today was sharing all those clips where mm-hmm. those conservative media channels just, they're, they don't know how to spin this Barbie success. This, this whole go woke, go broke thing just kind of was shattered over the weekend but it's it's never played out in like actuality ever oh, no, some yeah. movies fail mm-hmm. and they might have i don't i i feel it's weird to even say they have left-leaning politics because sometimes it's there's a gay person in the background somewhere Sh- sure i guess that's left okay and then some movies are very successful and they also have a gay character in the background somewhere. Like, there has never been a consistent... Um, From these people, throughout. a rationale for why things succeed and why they fail. Mm-hmm. I feel like you and I have a better tack for why things succeed and why they fail. Um, like what we just said with Mission Impossible. If it had come out in August, when there's literally no... Comp- when its biggest competition is Blue Beetle and Gran Turismo, yeah, Mission Impossible would be having a much better time if it was there. Um, Hell, maybe even Indiana Jones would have a better time if it was in August than it was in June. Um, but, you know, that that's just kind of where we are right now. Um, but, I mean, as far as um, these numbers are concerned, Peter, it is... Just seemingly extraordinary. We all saw the videos. I mean, we were there in person to see the people who were just coming out. I mean, people literally, more than anything, more than just movies, people took this as an event and they went all out with it. I mean, there was even this one video where I saw this girl that she, like, her getup was like dual. It was like, in one instance, it was like black for Oppenheimer and then it was like pink for, for Barbie. Like she took it off or she switched into the pink after she saw Oppenheimer. Yeah. So it's like people really went all out for this and that really just kind of um, – like when I I told the other guys uh, on the last episode, you know, regardless of what the reasons were – it just feels good to finally see people come out and enjoy the movies and make them an event again. Because for us, for the last few years especially, it's, it's just felt like interest in this art form has just dwindled um, considerably, not just in the age of streaming, but then also you know in the age of post-COVID, for sure. So that was definitely nice to see. Um, and also, um, 
before we get into the movies themselves, it what makes this even more extraordinary is that both of these films were so tremendously received. A cinema scores, both of them, A cinema scores. And that is like, to me, I would think that Oppenheimer would have been guaranteed of that considering that before the fact, if there was, if not for this whole Barbenheimer mania, I would think it would be mostly Nolan heads that would see this film and it would for sure kind of get an A. But considering that more, many more people than just Nolan heads, like I want to say half the audience that saw Oppenheimer was not a Nolan head and it still got an A. And then even more shocking, Barbie, which I was so sure walking out of that film, ooh, there's going to be a backlash. It's going to be divisive. For that to get an A, we we cannot stress enough how I'll I'll use the word miraculous it is. That's Barbenheimer. It's a Barbenheimer miracle. Did you get your shirts? <laughs> no <Like a> poster. <laughs> no. The posters have been nice. They have it's been they great. Really have. Great artwork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really sparked a lot of people's artistic. Um, I don't know, bone sensibilities. Yeah. Well, we definitely do needed it. Uh, we did need it. Uh, with we do needed it. What the fuck was that? We do <laughs> definitely need it in these times. Anywho, um, I wanted to ask you: Did did you want to order uh review these films in the order that we saw them, or did you want to do it the other way around? Do you have any? No, I don't. We can we can do it in the order that we saw it, if you want. Uh, I guess the last question for you is, uh, do you feel that the way that we did it was the way to do it, or do you feel that it would be better to do Barbie first and then Oppenheimer? I think it, de- it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to sit in where Oppenheimer leaves you, um, like you really want to feel that impact, do it last. If if you're a, a bitch like me, and it's like mm, no no thank you existential dread. Uh, <laughs> hello darkness, my old friend. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, instead of that, you say hello Barbie. You know, then you do Oppenheimer and then Barbie. It you depends say, on you. Yeah, I would say that. There could be no better movie to watch after Oppenheimer than Barbie. I feel anyway. Yeah. Like almost immediately, it was just like a a breath of fresh air. Okay, thank God. (laughs) Honestly. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get into this. If you want to get your phone out and uh, uh, put up the letterbox uh, synopsis for Oppenheimer, um, go ahead and do so. Okay. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty, and to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death. The destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Oppenheimer. Directed by Christopher Nolan. 
You sh- you you know the rest. You don't want to say the, this large cast. Oh, yeah. oh God! I can do it. If you don't want. You don't want to. No, let, let's let's hit it off. One breath. <laughs> Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Benny Softy, Michael Angarano, Josh Arnett, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, Dane DeHaan. Dylan Arnold, David Krumholtz, Arden Ehrenreich, Matthew Modine, Gary Oldman, Alex Wolf, KFC <laughs> Affleck, Jack Quaid, Emma Dumont, David Desmolchian, James Darcy, Josh Peck, Jason Clark. I'm out. <laughs> are you are you really? Uh, Jason Clark. This this is a, a rather large cast. Yeah. Uh the look at how many people are in this movie. It's insane. Um well, I'll say this. Uh I don't know it seemingly feels like this is Nolan's largest ensemble in a long time, right? Cuz I feel like the previous films have been rather limited as far as cast, right? Uh Dunkirk was pretty well, was it? Right. <laughs> There was, I mean, it had a lot of people, but I don't know if it had a lot of character. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. So, I mean, the previous one would be Interstellar, and that was Matthew McConaughey, Jessica Chastain. Matt Damon was in there for a little bit, but I don't remember too much of anybody else, really. I know that, um, I forget his name. Um, God, I forgot, but I know who else is in there. But then before that, it was Inception, I want to say. Inception was a pretty big, um, mm-hmm. Big cast, but this one I feel is like, to me anyway, this film is like an ensemble in the truest sense when it is a rather large cast, and a great many of them do a lot with rather limited screen presence because most of the time they're kind of just in the background, and then maybe every now and then they come up for air for a little bit of a for, for one a line, line read, yeah, <laughs> for one line read. But when they come up, they sure make the most of their moment. And I have to say, uh, part of the enjoyment of this movie is just watching this many faces. Like like one of the ones that I I was surprised to you didn't read his name here because um, he's not that well known. But uh, one of the ones that popped up in this movie that I was just surprised to see was Josh Zuck- uh, Zuckerman. Um, and he's like a nice character actor that, that pops up, you know, in thing in smaller things. Um, he played one of the students uh, in Oppenheimer's class um, before uh, Los Alamos. And, and oh, we forgot to mention Casey Affleck was also in the film. No, too. I said Casey. Did you say Casey? Okay. Mm-hmm. How could we forget Casey? That was <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, but see, even he's a great example because he is in one scene. But that scene was very memorable and kind of diabolical as well, um, at least as far as like, uh, you know, how he was used and everything. But no, I I genuinely loved a lot of the people in this movie, uh, just as far as like some of the smaller performances that I wanted to mention. Um, Dane DeHaan, he's not in too many things lately, and... I thought he was also um, really good for what little presence he has. And I'm happy to see him in something good for a change. Um, David Krumholtz was amazing. Oh, I really loved uh, to see Matthew Modine's face pop up. Uh, that was fun. Uh, but Alden Ehrenreich was really good in the film as well. 
Um, again, like he, this Han got- Solo had a better opening weekend. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Um, but he's also an actor that there's something to him, and I wish I'd seen more of him because he—you can see it here. He's really good. Uh, well, Gary Oldman was great too oh, in that one yeah. scene. Gary Oldman the, loves he, putting on that makeup. He loves the makeup lately, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he really. <laughs> <laughs> he said it from Winston Churchill to um, the um, uh, the Mankiewicz character in Mank, yeah. and now he play here uh, President Truman. It's well. It's remember the review with um, Mission Impossible last week, where I told you like movies today just aren't utilizing movie stars the way they should be. No. Um, and I think this is another positive example of the ways in which they are utilizing them well. Um, so, yeah. I mean, if, if Benny Softy was great in this too. He got a lot of screen time, he, he, Benny Softy. I thought, because it was Benny Softy, I thought he would have one of those background roles. But his was actually pretty big comparatively yeah. to uh, everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it was larger than Rami Malek's role. It was larger yeah. than Kenneth Branagh's role. Um, it was larger than Robert Downey Jr.'s for a while. <laughs> honestly, yeah. It's pretty interesting. The one regular that wasn't in here. Now, it could be due to age, but Michael Caine was the only one that wasn't here in this movie. Yeah. It's probably no actor for him that old. <laughs> Or British enough, I guess. That's true. This is mostly... I don't want to hear his American accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jack Quaid also popped up in this movie yes. as well. He's he's in a lot of stuff. He really is. And of course, it was nice to see David Desmalchian. Um, I also want to say, just as a brief aside, um, he is also one of those names that... Uh, can we just thank James Gunn again for propping up? Because, you know, James Gunn, I've noticed in these last two... His last two films has really given big characters to actors who really aren't that well-known or haven't had that big break. But David Dalsmelchian had an amazing role in The Suicide Squad, a oh, memorable yeah. role in The Suicide Squad. And then, of course, uh, Chikwadi Awaji was the main fucking villain. Not just, well, he was a, he had a great role in Peacemaker, but he had an amazing role in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And I just love the guy, James Gunn, for really, like, bringing up you know, up and coming talent, or maybe not even up and coming, but just talent that's been there in the sidelines and the wings, but not just been properly utilized. And again, it's really shocking to me how, you know, Peacemaker, I know this is a rant at this point. It's going to be a rant. Everything you say is a rant. It's fine. But John Cena's best performance was in Peacemaker. Oh, yeah. That was an amazing performance, too. And so, um, just wanted to put that out there and also to, to, just to keep that in mind for um, people's expectations of what we might see in Superman Legacy but I just feel that the casting there has been sensational I so agree. I want to put that into perspective as far as like you know in the conversation of you know utilizing actors in the in the best way possible um, oh yeah and James, James Darcy was there um, that's like what three Agent Carter actors in the last two weeks that have gotten uh, interestingly uh, notable uh, screen time on the big screen. So if there's one though, and, and, and I guess this might be, I know we haven't talked about the film broadly yet, but just going off into the smaller areas of it. If there's one particular performer that I feel I'm not going to say was miscast because it wasn't, I, I never, I rarely say or use miscast as a thing that was 
Although you might feel differently about Timothy Chalamet in, in the upcoming Wonk movie. We'll Wonk find movie. out. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out when that happens. But um, people, by the way, real quick, I know we I keep bringing away from Oppenheimer, but that trailer, uh, people feel that the person that should have been cast was not Timothy Chalamet, but Tom Holland. <laughs> More than two twinks exist uh, <laughs> in Hollywood. Well, it's that like, I guess your, your, your main thing was that Timmy didn't have the whimsy. Okay, who, mm. who to your mind has the whimsy? I, I get the, I guess you would want to get a named actor again. This is why I always hate like fan casting. Yes. Because whenever it comes to casting, I just, th- I'm like, well, I'm not, if I'm casting, I don't know. I just immediately go to like, if I'm making a movie, I'm throwing out a wide net and I'm hiring a casting director and I'm, and I'm looking at tapes of people. Like, I can't think of like famous people. I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to limit myself like that. Um, you imagine an alternate reality where they cast Harry Styles, Wonka? That would be worse. <laughs> I mean, but it would be fun to see. No, it wouldn't. Not to be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but I guess we'll see when that happens. But the person that I was referring to in Oppenheimer that I, I'm not saying her performance was anything bad. I'm also not saying that the scenes in which she was in were bad. They weren't. I'm saying for who she is, it feels like she was the least service to be in the film. Florence Pugh. Um, I feel with Florence Pugh, she usually... I feel you you use her a little bit differently. But I thought she was great in what she was doing. I think she's always great. Yeah, but that's that's more of an issue with the character than yes, than with yeah. the actor or actress playing them. That's what I was referring mm-hmm. to, in, 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 essentially. Even though I do understand from a narrative standpoint why that's there and how it comes later into play, but that was about it. Um, so I would feel pretty confident, Peter, in that you and I are in agreement that Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy were not only like amazing in this film, but I feel pretty confident that they both are going to be nominated for Oscars at the end of the year. And I'm fairly confident that Oppenheimer is easily looking at 10 nominations. I'll, I'll go a step further. I think Killian and Robert Downey Jr. are both going to get nominated. I think Oppenheimer is looking at easily 10 nominations. And I think Robert Downey Jr. is going to win. Wow. It just feels, I don't know, it's a feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that can all be thrown up in the air, right? Like, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon still has to come out. And people are saying that's Leo's best performance. I don't know if that's lead or supporting or I don't know what. Um, Plus, whatever unknown entity may be out there, yeah, you never there's know. Always there's always a, a couple of surprises that just comes out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, people just latch onto it, and it hits. Remember this time last year, people were thinking it was the Fablemans that would be like dominating, but then everything, everywhere, all at once came, and it was a fucking train wreck. I mean, a freight train. Sorry. Yeah, but the difference is everyone loves Oppenheimer. Yes, um, and with the strike, I don't see much. I don't see much, <laughs> you know, like, because you might get, like, stuff to move, like, Challengers, theoretically, Challengers could have been, like, a, a Oscar curveball, right, mm-hmm. that comes in, and, and then you can get some, like, supporting actor, 
uh, one of Zendaya's two white boys in that movie. I don't know. They could have come in depending they on... They could but they're not. But they're not anymore. But now they, they moved it. So it's like... I don't know. Those are... Th- that's just how I'm feeling now. Because Robert Downey of course, has such love. He got nominated for doing blackface in a Ben Stiller comedy. Oh, my God. He did, didn't he? He's got love in that in the Academy, and this is the and it and this is one of those performances where you, you they eat that shit up. It's one of those perf- It's the kind of performance that gets nominated. Mm-hmm. It's it's very it fits that vibe, and then also, wouldn't it just be a, uh, another way to uh, dig at Marvel for like, oh, now we're gonna reward you, reward RDJ. you for get, moving away from them. You're right. But in tandem with also him being like a big actor that they love. Yeah. I just think the stars are aligning. I, I mean, also, uh, this is one of his best performances. He's great. He's fantastic. I can't believe he was saying that he was scared about acting when he maybe he, maybe he was good for him to be scared because look at what he, he delivered yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I... You think RDJ is like, I would think the one that seems to be in the hunt to win more so than that would be Nolan for director. That's a wild card, right? I can see it happening. Because he's only been nominated once before, but this might be his time. I I think, and again, that's a little bit harder to see. It'll become more clear the closer you get to the Oscars. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely see them going like, yeah, like it's, it's also, again, the love for him from Hollywood, very real. Um, and the type of movie that it is, right? That's, that's the key because I feel like, first of all, he's got both of those things going his way, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. A Nolan film usually wins an Oscar. Tenet won an Oscar. He was yeah. for visual effects, but I mean, come on, Tenet won an Oscar. Dunkirk was beloved and it mm-hmm. won the technical stuff. And usually his movies do well in the technical categories. But now with the type of movie he's made, it very much is up their alley, which is why I feel so fairly confident in saying it's got those 10 nominations ready to go. You can write them right now. Nothing's going to change that. It's going to get those nominations and it may yeah. even get those wins. And what's what a lot of his previous movies were missing were acting performances to be nominated. That's, but I think that's what's different for director too. All right, or I think that's what you're saying. Um, yes, because yeah, because he people loved Dunkirk and it won all the technical things. But I think a lot of people just sort of saw it as a technical achievement, like um, a George Miller and Mad Max Fury Road yes. situation. But now that this is this is very much like story and character driven. Now the Academy is like, oh, this is a picture. You know, this, he's a director. So I can really see it. Um, I can also, oh yeah, okay. So for sure he's going to get nominated for director. I guess I should throw that in. I, I think a nomination is without a doubt. Win? It's it's unsure. But um, if if ever he were going to get nominated, it would it would be for the, no, sorry, win. It would be for It this. would be for a movie like this. Yeah. So and I feel like go ahead. Maybe to steer things a little bit closer to the discussion of the film. Yes. Um I also think it's his best film. So I think it would make sense. 
Which is why I feel so strongly about even calling that out there. It's like it's – even if I wasn't as enthusiastic as I am about this movie, I, I think it, these nominations would kind of be a shoe in Let's mm-hmm. be real about it. But I do think, honestly, like The Dark Knight notwithstanding, because mm-hmm. that's The Dark Knight. But even then, you're you're saying that this is the best movie he's done. And I, I, I feel like by a wide margin, it kind of is. Um, if I'm thinking about his work, that's not the Dark Knight by a wide margin for me. It is because, mm-hmm. to me, the real the real magic in the film was the impressive ability to, for the span of three hours, have me just so high energy engaged in what's going on. I was riveted. I. There was not a single moment where I like dropped off in terms of like interest, in terms of like where the story was going. And I honestly thought, you know, contrary to some other opinions that are out there, it it felt to me that it was getting stronger the more the movie was going. He was able to really have that level of, you know, thrilling suspense in a biopic Mm -hmm. and that to me is even a greater achievement this is a biopic really and he was able to make it feel anything but that and in an age where biopics honestly at least from our perspective have become some of the most stale movies out there like even one of the oh god i've seen like again for however little we get of good trailers we get so many of the same kind of trailers I think I did the math, Peter, on the last episode about how many times the Gran Turismo trailer has played in front of me. Oh my god! Like I feel like at least sixteen times I've you seen can that hate trailer. Me now. But I won't stop now. But I won't. <laughs> I've at least seen the Bob Marley trailer like six times at this point, and it's like again, no disrespect to Bob Marley, no disrespect to Whitney Houston, but those films, you know what they are by looking at them. Yeah, like I feel bad, but it it is that thing of like I know, I know, I just know what this movie is, and I don't care. <laughs> and with this film, it's like you say, it doesn't play like a biopic. It 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 plays like a Greek tragedy. Um, yeah. And, you know, just speaking to its brilliance, I think the reason why, you know, you say like caveats for the Dark Knight, touche. Um, but why I think it's, it's, it's fair to call it, it, it his best is it really pulls on everything he sort of perfected in his career. Mm. Like the way that he plays with time. Yeah. In all of his past films, it's done expertly here. Yeah. It it you're constantly moving forward in time and back in time and even further back in time and even farther and then the present. And it, and it's just just this yo-yoing back and forth. And it works. It works so well. The the editing is insane for this film. This underlying feeling of tension that that drives you for three hours and never lets up once. No, is it's just incredible. It, I, I just feel like everything he's he sort of not only learned as an actor, but touched on thematically in his past films is 
very much here. Um, because you see a lot of parallels between Oppenheimer and really the way he told the story of like Batman or Leonardo Di DiCaprio's character, I think in Inception, it's this individual with a complex individual with seemingly altruistic intent, sort of losing their way in in this like in this attempt to create something bigger than themselves mm -hmm. and it's this is the film where i think he's been sort of like you can tell he's been wanting to make it for forever and i just think it comes together beautifully i i'm still thinking about it today and I'm still picking up on little things throughout the film where I go like, oh, my God, like, yeah, that's perfect. The way that ties to this. And like, you know how I say the way it, it plays with time, um, there's this wonderful moment and I'm really dig just getting into it where they're at that meeting and they've just discovered that uh, the Russians have uh, an atomic bomb. And he's looking at them map out explosive, like, impact sites in Russia. And he's seen the droplets of water that he saw at the beginning of the in the movie. But now they're like, they're like impacts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the way visually they look. And then he's hearing this, like, thundering, like, and it's drowning everyone out. And at that moment, you don't know what that that thundering is. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until later in the movie where it's like, oh, that thundering, it's revealed, is the audience that he speaks to directly after um, the first uh, test. Hiroshima. No, not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, after, yeah Hiroshima. after Hiroshima. Yeah. And the, the like, do, 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 the crowd over at Los Alamos. And the way that it, that's just so beautifully weaved together. It's um, it's incredible. Yeah. Um. At this point, um, if it hadn't already been obvious to anybody who was listening, this is going to entail pretty much the entire film, and it's spoilers. Spoilers. So they did it. <laughs> they made. They the did bomb. it. They made. <laughs> yeah, they did it. Um. No, man, it's just just endlessly riveting. I mean, I to me, you could not cast better than Killian Murphy. I, I really loved his performance because it always um, was just so interesting to look at. He has just one of those faces, like, and he does a lot with his face in so many of the moments in this film. That just like, you you read it and you feel it and you feel the impact of it, even just the sound of his voice uh, with certain scenes. You lean in to want to hear mm -hmm. um, with what he's saying. Um, but you know, to your point, I just thought it was one of the best examples I've ever seen of non-linear storytelling approach. With, yeah. you know, the forward and present tense and it all seemingly complementing each other and, and working in tandem um, in a way that I 
never once thought was confusing. Now, there were some things, the movie moves, and so there would be maybe a few details well, in the beginning. You're just presented with a lot that you're you don't quite understand yet. Yeah, you're you're thrown into it because there's very early on in the in, in the movie there's a moment where he's in the hearing, right? Mm-hmm. That where and you don't understand what's going on. You just know he's being questioned about his ties to certain individuals and certain beliefs, and it supposedly takes place after everything, you know? Yeah. But you don't really understand what it is, but you understand enough in that moment. And again, it's not until later on that it, it, it sort of come back and it's like, oh, this is what this is. And it's the same thing with characters. You're introduced to a lot of characters. And a, sometimes their importance doesn't even really come in until like the third act. And it's like, yeah. oh, like this is how this was we- weaved in from the beginning to here now. Um I think Robert Downey Jr.'s character is one of those. Uh, yeah, Louis Strauss, uh, because he he's in and out of there, but he, I guess he comes more and most in the focus in the third act. Yeah. So, um, there's... Man. Uh, gosh. There really is... A lot to this inspiration that Nolan took from Amadeus present in here with Strauss. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And with Oppenheimer. And it's brilliant. Um, I wouldn't say I was too surprised by the twist that happens with Strauss because you kind of do get a feel for the guy. And I his his scenes were so incredibly entertaining like one of my favorite moments in the whole movie was um, when they're in the the conference room, Strauss uh, with Alden Ehrenreich and the other guy, and they're talking about witnesses coming up, and then Ehrenreich hilariously asks a question about, well, what if he was just doing what he thought was right? And then RDJ just gives him a smirk, a, a, a look of disbelief. As if, like, then that's all he had to do to respond to that. Mm. Like, what? In Washington? Um, it was just a great-ass performance. Um, and just truly one that I want to go back into seeing again for how, you know, the film does not lack for wonderful cinematic moments like those that are just so entertaining. But it also doesn't lack for moments that are truly horrendous and haunting all the same mm-hmm. i'm not gonna go there immediately but i had alluded to it beforehand casey affleck scared the shit out of me <laughs> 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 just his whole scene well that's i think that's what christopher nolan is so good at that makes his film so entertaining because it's like okay i'm thinking of like any other director directing the scene it's like okay he had a conversation with somebody he wasn't supposed to and this guy is like he's a, he's the real deal and you don't want to mess with him mm-hmm. and the way that nolan does it is he plays it like a horror movie like he plays that tension of, of like you know you slowly you know his sort of mythology is built up in a matter of minutes and you're slow, the camera slowly moves 
around Oppenheimer and, and Oppenheimer sees him, but you don't see who he's talking to. You only hear his voice and, you know, you get these shots behind his head while he's really being mythologized by um, Matt Damon, you know, and, and, and again, that just adds to the tension and the filmmaking. And then you see it and you're like, oh, no, it's Casey Affleck. <laughs> um, it just works so well. Absolutely, it does. And then to me, just um, this, one of the sequences and maybe the sequence that just was so deeply resonant and just kind of damning to see was um, the Americana rah-rah speech he was giving at Los Alamos after Hiroshima, even saying things like, too bad we didn't get to use it on the Germans. All the while, of course, he doesn't really mean any of those things because in his mind, that's really accompanied the sequences with the sounds of the bomb. And if it even were to happen there while he was giving the speech, like you can just tell that the inner turmoil within himself is clearly beginning to take over while he's saying that very uh, nationalist speech. Mm-hmm. And that sequence maybe the best put together sequence of the year um so there's so many little things within it like right before the audience's like cheers and 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 screams disappear you know because at some point they just go out and he just doesn't hear anything there's like a a high-pitched like screech from like a woman like she's being murdered yeah and it's like right at the tail end and then, you know, silence, almost to mimic, you know, a very sudden and definitive death. Um, and you know it was practical, right? Like, like and I'm not saying, like, asking you, it's rhetorical, but that's what I'm saying. Like, everything they did in that sequence was, was practical, like, you know, the peeling of the face. Oh. Um. And do you know who the actress who played that? No. That was his daughter. That the, did the scream? Christopher Nolan. Wow. The one no, the one whose face is peeling. Oh, that's him. His daughter. Or his daughter, his daughter that the skin is peeling. Okay. Which I think is a pretty clear cut. It's I mean pretty on the nose i think when you talk about how he felt making this the anxieties of it you know um ugh. that that like that that was a pure horror moment and then you know i don't want to spend too much time on this because i know if i even do it a little bit you'll go off the rails um, me yes going off the rails how would i go off the rails as you are right now um, but, you know, there has been some criticism of the film and specifically sort of how there aren't sort of point of views of, let's say, the natives of the land that was taken from them, Los Alamos, from the the Japanese for which two atomic bombs were dropped on them. No perspective, no view of the carnage. 
And I think a lot of people, and again, this, I don't want to sound like an asshole, but like, this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the issues with media criticism, media literacy, and like people these days being very bad at it. Because, and and I know you get this, and it should be obvious, and it feels weird having to say it. Um, the point is that you are viewing this through the eyes of Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer when he took land from the natives, was not thinking about the natives. It did not even cross his mind. He wasn't thinking about half of... Nobody was in these boardrooms, not really, of the atrocities of the people themselves that they were going to be doing this to. There wasn't any real thought of it. And, and you mean the real life people? Yes. Okay, because at this point, did we not have Japanese internment camps? Yes. So, no, but I'm saying like in the movie. Oh yeah, okay. Because it's from Oppenheimer's perspective. That's mm-hmm. why you don't get anybody else. That's why you don't get these people's story in this movie because it's from the point of view of Oppenheimer, and he does not. He doesn't make the very real consideration of them. Like there's a a good scene where him, he's in some seeming classroom or something, and they're looking at the effects of the atomic bomb. And the audience doesn't see the effects. We don't see what's projected. But that audience in the scene do see the the events because it it is an audience. Yes, but there's a reason why we, the audience, don't see it. Mm-hmm. Because Oppenheimer looks away, he he kind of looks down. He he's he's unwilling to be confronted, whether due to cowardice or just um whatever, <laughs> you know. He he just refuses to look, and that's why uh, this is another example that kind of ties to it that kind of shows the kind of person Oppenheimer was, which again, isn't in a great light is after the um, death of uh, Florence Pugh's character. He makes a big show of like crying and being sad and sort of throwing himself about it. And then his wife comes up and smacks the shit out of him. And it's like, you don't get to, like commit the sin and then like basically act surprised at the end of it you know you you don't get to to wallow in self-pity in this way when you didn't give a fuck about the sin you were committing while you committed it and that sort of speaks to the larger narrative of who he is because that's what he that's what happened in real life that's happened in the film you know he he didn't really feel the effects until it had already happened and now he sort of wants to wallow in the pity of look you know look at what i did and it's like do you do you get to do that when you didn't make those considerations while you were committing the sin it's just a good movie okay well, I, you know, I thought when you were talking about me going off uh, the rails, uh, you might 
uh, be alluding to the politics that were in the film because that was oh. definitely getting me, yeah. you know, fiery red the entire time because I feel like, again, in, it is not necessarily a focus too much, but, uh, you know, it's set up enough. But, I mean, in the film, there is really no shortage of just grade, grade A hypocrisies and atrocities all throughout i mean the idea that now that isn't to say that there weren't some people that when they joined the communist party they did intend to you know join with the ideas of of russia and the soviet union but you know by and large there were plenty of people who joined the communist party because they were pro-labor and they were pro-worker and it definitely spoke to a lack of um, presence of support among the major political parties, so much like we see today. And so it always gets my blood boiling when in these movies, especially in the 50s that take place in that era, we're having people come up before an investigation because they've had communist ties, even though, of course, they were usually mostly oftentimes had those communist ties, not because they were anti-American, but because they were even more American than those obvious right-wing bastards that could not care <laughs> about, you know, people being left out in the cold or going hungry. All the while, of course, how is it that in the 50s, you having a pro-labor record was somehow seen as un-American, while at the very same time, or not at that same time, but you know, in the decade prior, we literally had internment camps for our own citizens. Yeah. Which is a little bit fashy. Well, you know, just a touch. You know? <laughs> so it's like, the hypocrisy always like just pisses me off when i see it in, in these films about these people who are brought in with just you know false accusations with bad faith accusations and then of course um just the grade a assholes that all you know dwell in the intelligence agencies and in the uh just entire military apparatus of just the worst right-wing warmongering dicks imaginable that to them a person who is pro-labor would be seen as a traitor <laughs> which by the way is kind of swirling in the background of this movie and i kind of feel like if if you're just a normie that doesn't know about this you might be confused but then again normies do subscribe to the idea that communism in America in those times, I guess, was Soviet Union communism. Uh, and then, of course, there's this whole discussion of, well, is socialism even worse than fascism? So, And then they may not even know what these topics or what these terms even mean. So what am I saying? But I don't know. I, I have to ask it's never you, stop them from having an opinion. Basically, right? Do you feel... For normie viewers, there are elements of this film that may be just not um, accessible to them. I mean, there's elements of the films this 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 shit ain't accessible to me. I mean, <laughs> physics for sure. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, all that talk. It's like it sounds important. <laughs> um, but. Again, the way the movie is constructed, 
I think it just, there's a reason why it has an A cinema score. Because you kind of feel smart watching the movie. Because you're <laughs> presented with a lot of just high intellect um, ideas and subject matter. But it's done in such a way where it's just, it's digestible and accessible mm-hmm. to, I think, your average moviegoer. That's great filmmaking. Yeah, that's fantastic filmmaking from Christopher Nolan. Because, yeah, there's so many things in this movie that I'm not going to pretend like I know what the fuck. Even some of the political stuff. It's like, I, it's like yeah, this is news to me. I don't even, Committee hearing, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, but it, it, I never felt lost in the drama or the character or I the important thing is you understand what this means yes to the character and I think a great example of that is in the beginning you know they talk about how he he sort of was obsessed with another world you know this atomic world in in that's there right in front of us that we can't see specifically um you know, the quantum physics and all that. And they'll visually represent it on screen. And I can't tell you exactly what is being physically, what is being represented, you know. A, a quantum physicist would tell you, oh, that is this particular thing. This is an atomic, this is the atom, this, this, or whatever. I can't tell you exactly what they are, but I have an idea of that. I get the emotion of it. Um, so yeah, it, that's just sort of an example of the way it works. Yeah. Um, that being said, this film is three hours long and it kind of flies by. I mean, you do feel its length, but you're in it every moment. And at no point I would say does it ever like drag, which that in and of itself is its own accomplishment. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, though, Peter, uh, in regards to the film's release, do you think this is a film that is worthy of the number of IMAX screens it currently holds or held when it opened? What do you mean? Do you feel like this is a film that benefits much from the IMAX experience? Um, That's so funny how it's sold as an IMAX experience, right? Uh... I mean, it's loud. <laughs> it 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 feels like a large film. It's, it's an epic film, as far as the grandness of it all. But like, have to see the IMAX screen. We sure as hell didn't see the IMAX screen, and I didn't walk out of it going like, "It's gotta be an IMAX," which is funny because I think he shot the entire thing in IMAX. He did. Which is funny because it's like... It's a drama biopic. It's a drama in these dinky, tiny little rooms. And I guarantee you a third of that room was taken up by these big-ass IMAX cameras. (laughs) Because he insisted to shoot the entire film on IMAX. Um, I guess. It just seems a bit unfair because there is a film that would benefit a lot from IMAX called Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah. Again, it's just 
wrong release date. Yeah. All right. Well, if that's where we're going to land there with Oppenheimer, let's go ahead and move on to the next film we're going to discuss today. And that would be the latest from Greta Gerwig. She previously directed films like Lady Bird and Little Women. And here she is with Barbie. Barbie. She's everything. He's just Ken. Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. Directed by The Feminist Agenda and starring uh, Ryan Gosling. I'm billing him first. Oh my god. <laughs> men men come first. Margot Robbie. America Ferreira. Ariana Greenblatt. Oh yeah, that's the girl. Kate McKinnon, Michael Sarah, Simu Liu. Is it Liu or just Liu? Liu. Okay. Simu Liu. Issa Rae. Kingsley Benadir. Alexandria Ship. Emma Mackey. Nikati Gatwa. Hari Neff, and uh, Dua Lupe. Yeah, it's funny. John Cena, Ray Perlman, Will Ferrell, Helen Mirren is the narrator. Yeah, just a shit ton of actors and actresses. <sighs> Barbie. The second half of our Barbenheimer experience. Now, I know you're a bit of a Barbie aficionado. Yes, I am. Um, so you, you, let's hear it from you first <laughs> as the, our premier Barbie fanatic here on the red spotlight entertainment. What did you think of Greta Gorig's Barbie? Not enough pink. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough pink Too too much heart mm. uh, i hate when that happens <laughs> i know right we could have had a little bit more comedy in there oh yeah um more musical numbers yeah probably um this movie i feel you're gonna i think feel the exact same way had me in the palm of its hand as it opened i do love that opening <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, of course it, uh, by the way, um, at this point going forward, if you haven't seen the film, be warned, we're going to basically ruin it for you. Um, but it basically opens with the teaser trailer that everybody knows of the 2001 uh, Space Odyssey homage. And it, it it's, I mean, that in and of itself was perfect, but then... When we arrive on Barbie Land and then we, we open with a Lizzo musical number. And I want to say it's an original song made for this movie. You're, oh, uh, she narr- she's kind of like saying yeah. everything that's going on. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's, it's, yeah. There were actually two different versions, which the second version is not on the soundtrack, which was disappointing because it oh, was that's even the funnier. best one. <laughs> I know, but the, but it, it opens up with a musical number. It's, and it, it's, immediately and instantly infectious just 
the the energy that it, it's emulating and you're just like oh my god yes yes we're we're in it we're here we're going to have so much fun and it is a lot of that for i want to say a good 5 to 10 minutes we're just literally there in Barbie's life and we we meet uh i mean the production design we knew it was going to be but the production design is immaculate and how in the world would this not be considered a front runner for best production design of the academy awards it's i'm telling you right now if it it, it has to win it's so good it's like it's a whole world and they actually yeah. built it they actually built a lot of it yeah and it's not one of those things where it's like let's spend five minutes here and then we'll spend the rest of the movie in the real world. Most of the movie is in Barbie land. And that was one of my concerns of the film going into it that as soon as we left Barbie world, most of the film would be in the real world. And I was so happy to see that wasn't the case in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like we spent precious few moments. That being said for the sequences that do exist in the real world, they're pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm just happy that most of the film takes place in the actual set that they built, in the actual world that they made. It's a beautiful set. It, it, there's and of course there's like CGI and, and stuff in there. But these both films, I think, also speak to the wonders of movie making. You know, of uh, just m movie magic as far as effects are concerned. Because all those wonderful things you see in um, Oppenheimer were achieved, you know, without CGI. And the majority here were also achieved. Like, Barbie Land felt like a real place you could hop in and, like, live in. You could, you could just see these beautiful, wonderful, amazing sets. And also, when they're, like transporting themselves from barbie land to the real world and they're like on the spaceship and you know and and all that i've seen footage where that was like on a sound stage and they yeah. had like a moving background and then a moving foreground and it and it looked like a like from the 1930s or or 50s or something where just old old-fashioned tricks and it's just so fun so well mm -hmm. done. Oh, and I also saw, and I thought this was, this separates, you know, uh, the movies that are just kind of like, okay. And you're like, well, why isn't this hitting better? And like the fucking artists who, who go for it. Um, I know I, I saw that Greta Gorick said that they had found the exact percentage difference between barbie and like all the objects she interacts with like the house uh -huh. and like the car like she's like yeah like everything is like i can't remember the exact number but like 20 percent smaller than in the real world so like the house is like 20 percent smaller compared to what a, a regular human house would be mm -hmm. and the car is like 20 percent smaller because that's how it is in the the toys, the size compared to like when you put the Barbie toy into the Corvette or put her in the house or have her pick up like 
um, a brush, you know, a tiny little brush to brush her hair. And so they made sure to proportion that. So that's that added effect that makes it feel more toy-like because of the way that the proportions are. And I'm like, that's, it's those beautiful little details that really pull everything together. And man, how, I mean, how much of that is missing? From practically most of the movies that are made today. Yep. Just that attention to detail or the care to have that attention to detail. Um, and as we saw on screen, it definitely made all the difference. This would not have worked if most of what we were seeing was just visual effects. Yeah. CGI. It wouldn't have worked. Um, so, yeah. But almost immediately as the film starts, you you just know what a perfect um, decision it was for practically everybody who was in this film to be in this film. Um, literally from the beginning of the movie, when you, you, the, from the first interactions uh, that you see of Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling or even Michael Cera or Kingsley Benadire it's like perfect or even seemingly it's like, yeah, you fit in perfectly. They, they bring a whole world to life almost like effortlessly. And it's, and at that point in the movie, you're not exactly certain about where it's going to go, how they take it to where it ends up being <laughs> and what kind of movie it ends up being. Um, because, uh, I'm not going to say that the film is like slapstick or, or it's like, you know, like a comedy because I don't really see it as that. I feel like it, generally speaking, the, the, the way that Barbie land is, is kind of silly, but they don't treat it as it being silly. They're, they're very much live in this reality and they take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film goes places. Um, it reaches several emotional linchpins that I I really wasn't expecting to hit as hard as they do. Um, this film, in and of itself, is just a surprise that it even exists in the first place. I can't believe Greta Gerwig was able to do this. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're looking at a Greta Gerwig film. This fits very much in line with Lady Bird, with Little Women. It's very clearly in terms of not just its messaging, but for how uh, how much care and attention and love she has for um, her characters, which happen to be very much, you know, female-centric. I... I I want to see it again because I I first of all the film is good enough more than good enough to go see it again but to me anyway it definitely was one of the most if not the most unique cinematic experience um not only did the film deliver, I feel that it over-delivered on, on uh, definitely what it was uh, promising. Margot Robbie was fantastic 
and often emotional. America Ferrera was great too. And Ryan Gosling definitely giving the performance of his life. As he said it himself, this is the role he was born to play. Um, and he treated it as such. The musical sequences, the one with the Kens particularly, legendary. Um, I feel ultimately what we're looking at here is a beautiful monument of a movie. And I'm just really happy to see that in its just short life that it's had here for a week, it has um, gotten that kind of recognition. Pretty much Loki loved this movie. And <laughs> I want to see it again. And for the record, I do want to see Oppenheimer again. I think both of these films are worth repeat viewings. Because there's just also <laughs> so much in them. round two. Barman, yep, yep. So those are my thoughts. Um, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of what to say, but it's like, no, yeah. I, I think to me, what's so wonderful is just what a, what an event this movie is, you know, like so many, so many people just having fun dressing up in pink, getting all dressed up, going to the movie theaters, having a good time and watching a movie you know not yes it's a product for it's barbie for sure right but it's like a real movie made by a real director with vision and with so much interesting fun such a fun interesting weird movie um and it's really awesome to see that success for it uh Call, call me sexist. Uh, Ryan Gosling stole the show. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. In a movie called Barbie, Ken, Ken, Ken killed it. Uh, I think he's so wonderful. And I actually think, I think the reason why it works so well is because his character is basically like the antagonist. Mm-hmm. of the film and his lovability is key otherwise because even though he's the antagonist he's it's it's very much he's going on his own personal journey um so you need that lovability and, and that sort of likability in him because you don't want him to come off as too like a like a like a cartoon villain or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Like you really want it to work as him just being a character and the way Barbie is just a character. And I think like one of my favorite sequences is when they're in the real world and he's discovering patriarchy. Um and <laughs> there's the moment where like these these businessmen talking and then like a woman comes up to talk to one of the businessmen and he he's like puts up his finger like not right now and then uh ryan gosling's can like mimics it but he does it in such a funny way where he's like like just the way he did it like like 
sort of mimicking him in a way, but mm-hmm. to him, he's just doing it the way he, he viewed it. Um, it endears you, even though he's sort of learning some kind of fucked up shit, you know, it endears you to him. Uh, Margot Robbie is, she's a star. I don't care what anyone fucking says. Margot Robbie, I've been supporter day one. I, I was out here in the trenches for su- the Suicide Squad. I was fucking on an island on my own defending uh, Babylon. You should have got your Oscar based off Babylon. It's, I'm disgusted that you didn't. And, like, she is Barbie. Like, she's great. She's such an amazing actress. Like, to me, you know, she isn't, like, a, a movie star. And, and, again, I'm glad that there's movies coming out right now that I think really knows what to do with movie stars. Cause yeah, she, she kills it with the comedy and the physical comedy too, which that can be difficult. And she's, she has some really funny stuff. Um, but also of course the emotional stuff, but you already know that because her entire filmography. Um, and then all the supporting actors are just so much fun. Mm-hmm. I love, um, Issa Rae. She's so oh, great. Yeah. I loved her as the president. I think the biggest laugh of the movie for me was when she says, uh, dream houses, motherfuckers. <laughs> and they like censor it. But, you know, again, it also goes to like the Ken's reaction. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, The dancing quiz. It's just a fun film. But it, it doesn't forget to be a film with, like, ideas and purpose and drive and interesting visually. It's always interesting visually. Um, yeah. Can I say a negative? Yeah. Uh, too many women. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> no, not that. Uh, I'm not Kyle's uh, sister. I'm not a sexist. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> that's a joke. Um, by the way, I don't think her criticism is entirely wrong. I didn't even read it. Uh, oh, okay. Do you want me to relay it to you? If you want. Okay. Uh, basically, she felt it was kind of not cool how the kens the kens were kind of at the end it's like they thought like the ending is like okay kens and and barbies are going to be on equal footing here but the kens kind of aren't they they're they're thrown a couple of crumbs like (laughs) you get one supreme court on the lower court and i think that's that's all to set up the gag of like Hey, you know, the Kens work hard. One day they'll have as much power in their world as women have in this world. And, you know, that kind of like backhanded joke. And it's like, okay, I kind of see it's. It's not it's not it's not like. A a criticism where I'm like, because, you know, a lot of criticisms, I'm like, where the fuck are these people talking about? It's like, no, I can kind of see where that comes from for me. My only real criticism, and this really happens very much in like the second act, is too much of the movie is 
the movie looking you at the eyes and 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 keep telling you its message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of stops yeah. to tell you its message. And which sucks because it was doing such a fun and unique job of I think portraying that exact same message but not as heavy-handed earlier in the film. Is it just the one sequence or is there a, what are the sequences you have in mind when you say that? Well, you have like the one with America Ferrera, her big speech, where it's like, okay, you know, big speech moment, sure. But then, like, they use the whole plot revolves around telling that same speech to like all the other Barbies that have been like hypnotized. Yeah, and and it's a lot of just like saying the message out loud basically kind of just saying it at the audience and it's like mm, i would have liked of just a better way of, of conveying that same message because i i think a lot of stuff is really beautifully done when they're in the real world the, i think the best moment of the film is when she's sitting on that bench yeah and of course that's the one the executives tried to get cut out of the movie <laughs> but it's, it's so well done you know the the way she sort of takes in life you know the happiness and the sadness and the way and again you know the way crying can just be cathartic and -hmm. then you know viewing an elderly woman and seeing that beauty in her um and of course what makes it is the woman going like yeah i know it of course I'm beautiful. <laughs> it's it's so it's so well done and it's heartwarming and it's moving and it's done without ever looking directly at the audience and saying this, 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 this. And then I feel that middle chunk, it it's a little too much of like this, this, like just saying it. But that middle chunk also has some of the most fun stuff, I think, in the movie. And some of the funniest gags. Um, I, I'm sure like you... the Godfather stuff. Oh, I loved the it. The Zack Snyder <laughs> Justice League one. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason why I thought it was so funny was because I was like, man, these these Mojo Dojo Casa houses are pretty sick. Like, like the 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 sort of cowboy like saloon doors they added. I was like, I don't. That's cool. <laughs> And then, yeah, of course, the Godfather stuff. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've sounded like that <laughs> several times in my life. Um, like every guy. Oh, yeah. Every father, for sure. Oh, yeah. But just to address that, I don't think this movie hates men. I, I don't think that it's kind of silly that it that needs to be said out loud, but it, it doesn't. Um... But it's it's just such a wonderful um, party of a of a movie. It, it it feels like a like a party. That sort of energy. Yeah. From it. And yeah, it's all good, all gay, all the way. Really curious to see how both of these films do on that second weekend. Uh, oh, I, think I think there's there's already projections. Yeah. Set like a fifty-five drop, basically for mm-hmm. both. 
I think which is incredible. Barbie's like fifty five, and then Oppenheimer was like fifty four, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I'm so like, they're doing really well. That's crazy good, especially from starting so high. Yeah. So if that's like indicative of the drops you're going to be seeing, because Barbie's already made four hundred, four hundred million worldwide. That's incredible. It, it'll be really interesting. I don't think it'll hit a billion, but um, it'll be really interesting yeah. to see how far it goes. Oh, and what do you think of its Oscar chances? Well, with the nature that of what the kind of movie that Barbie is, I feel it's only natural to be rather skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it's made a big enough splash to where bare minimum people are going to be thinking about this movie at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, so it has that going for it. Um, as far as nominations are concerned, that, I mean, that's where it gets tricky because they, they have nominated Greta Gerwig herself and her movies in the past. They have also nominated in the past, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. So that would suggest that, you know... Has Ryan been nominated? Yeah. For what? Well, I, at least for La La Land. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At least La La Land. I think there may have been another one, but at least he's been nominated for La La Land. Um, and then Robbie for I, Tanya. Um, as far as like what are its surest bets, uh, I think it's got... Original song for I Am Ken. Uh, you don't think they'll try and put in like Dua Lupe song or something like that? They might, but I would... Why? It just feels like the studios always make... It feels like a very... That sounds like a studio decision, you know? Like, oh, yeah, the pop which star... Which song they submit, yeah. That, that's on the radio charts right now. Oh, we're going to throw that one. Whereas, like, the real choice is I'm just Ken, you know? I'm I, I'm going to choose to be optimistic. Okay. <laughs> and say that they're going to pick I Am Ken. Um, I'm just Original Ken. song. Yes. Uh, uh, best costume design. Uh, oh. Best production design. It's winning costumes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, it has those three locked up for sure. And there is a chance screenplay, whether it be adapted or original, but I would probably think adapted for Greta Gerwig. Um, I think it's got those four. And I'd have to see what the competition is, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there are opportunities for picture director, actress, and supporting actor. But it is more of an uphill climb just in the best of circumstances because that's just not the kind of movie that first of all they nominate second of all they take seriously true and it's more men than women uh the academy so that's a big thing i can see and because of that i can see a ryan gosling nomination Mm -hmm. and i can see a gurig nomination either for director or for adapted screenplay. Screenplay, yeah. Because for, for screenplays, they like to dabble a little bit more in those kind of films. Uh-huh. Ryan's, uh, Ryan? Ryan Johnson? Ryan Johnson, yeah. He's been nominated twice for the... 
Knives Out Knives movies. Out movies, which are very much in line with like this film, like yes. that kind of film. So I can, at the very least, see like an adapted screenplay nomination. Yeah, so I think it 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 would be shocking and really sad this that uh, it would be left out altogether. I feel like if that were to happen, people would be pissed. I think it has to get something because one one half of Barbenheimer can't can't get noms. It also is the stronger half, at least from a box office perspective. Yeah, yeah. Like Barbenheimer lifted Oppenheim- Oppenheimer, or Barbie lifted Oppenheimer. So it's like, and Barbie is going to end up being one of the biggest movies of the year. So I I feel like both of these movies are going to be. Uh, sustained as far as you know being in the conversation uh for the remainder of the year and again it also is very dependent on well what else comes into play if something else comes into play because uh, we don't necessarily know how many movies are gonna be coming out or not anymore it's more i mean by the time we hit november we're gonna have a better idea yeah, for sure. Because that's usually the month where all these things happen. So make sure to stay tuned here on Red Spotlight for more of an update on that. And uh, as far as what is coming out at the movies in the next few weeks and months, stay under our spotlight for more content and more. Thank you, Peter, for being here. And we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.